All right, so we're back. No, we're back. We haven't gone anywhere. We're here. Uh, and uh, let me just begin by saying that when the 13th turn, A History of the Noose, which is a book by Jack Shuler, when it first arrived, actually arrived at my house. Um, but I brought it into work, and we looked at it, and uh, the cover's a little bit foreboding. And we thought, wow, do we really want to do this? Do we really want to spend that much time with this topic? But, um, but we did. Uh, Kion Wolf uh, took the project over. Uh, and, and we realized that, boy, it, it's really worth it. The, first of all, this book by Jack Schuler is just an unusually comprehensive book that, that, that stretches from Denmark in 350 B.C. to, to the present moment uh, and, and with a lot of interesting stops in between. And also that, you know, we'd already talked about this a lot and we wanted to talk about it some more that we have uh, right here in Connecticut, Lawrence Goodhart, uh, who wrote The Solemn Sentence of Death, which is um, – and un- unbelievably comprehensive and really good. I mean, you really, it's sort of one of these things where you wish somebody would write this book and somebody did. It's a history of capital punishment in Connecticut. And then we thought, well, if we got them together, it might be kind of an interesting conversation. So, so that's what we've done. And this is uh, going to be a story, a conversation about uh, hanging, uh, uh, about the noose, uh, about the noose as a symbol, but also uh, about the noose as a reality, the way that it's been used uh, uh, oppressively, uh, the way it's been used uh, as part of um, a normal judicial uh, execution process, but also as a part of an extrajudicial uh, execution process. And sometimes those lines, as Jack Schuler puts in his, uh, in his book, kind of blur anyway. So um, let's begin, uh, Jack Schuler, with um, let's begin in the present. So um, e- even within the last few days, uh, in uh, in the Carolina um, Senate race, I think it is no governor's race. I can't no, it's Senate race. Um, there was uh, a flyer circulating around that seemed to show a lynching, seemed to have something to do with President Obama being impeached. It it may actually it's hard to s- tell exactly where it came from. It may have even come from people who are concerned that because of the way the election goes, President Obama may be impeached and then liken that to a lynching, or it may be people trying to threaten voters and, and, and with, with the symbol of a lynching. You also steered us to this story from last week in Los Angeles where two high schools, by way of vandalizing and taunting one another, included nooses in the taunting, uh, kind of startlingly one of the policemen who looked at that, Sergeant Martin Acosta, said, well, you know, a noose doesn't really connect to anything explicitly. There's no (laughs) explicit connection, which is actually, I mean, I think there's another statement almost exactly like that in your book. And so let's sort of start there. You know, a noose in 2014, uh, I mean, can we say that it explicitly communicates a whole backstory? I think for the people who see it, um, it does um, uh, in in many different ways. Um, the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was a story about um, a woman who found a noose hanging on a door at the yeah. place where she worked in, in California. And, and I think the police said the same thing that time. Or he said it's just a knot and a rope, yeah. right? Um, and then I think about this guy that I interviewed um, in Indiana, um, a guy named Michael McKnight, who found a noose hanging um, from the time clock at the place where he worked. And he told me when he saw it, he saw himself with that particular rope around his neck. He saw himself hanging from a tree. Mm-hmm. So for him, it telegraphed this whole history of uh, racial violence. It telegraphed this whole history of lynching. And for him, it meant a great deal. Um, so I think what we have to think about is what, what do people see when they see it? And I think in, in most cases, most people see uh, this history. At least I hope they do. Um, uh, Larry Goodhart, let's uh, Connecticutize this. Uh, Larry Goodhart, professor of history at University of Connecticut. Uh, his book is The Solemn Sentence of Death, 
capital punishment. And in Connecticut, Jack Schuler, as I said, his book is The 13th Turn, A History of the News. So um, if we were uh, here in uh, sitting where I'm sitting right now in, in the colonial era, I'm assuming, and, and I know more about gallows than I ever wanted to after reading Jack's book, but so I'm assuming I wouldn't necessarily see a gallows every day, right? They would build the gallows when they needed them. But gallows were a relatively common sight from what I can tell. I mean, this was the way a lot of things not just what we we would now consider capital crimes, were dealt with, correct? There were gallows, but they were more ad hoc. Mm -hmm. Connecticut, in its almost 400 years, has had 158 people executed. So that's over 400 years. Mm -hmm. If we go to Texas, and that's what Jack was uh, cogently bringing up, <clears throat> if we go to the Deep South, where there was a need to suppress uh, black people, both in slavery and Jim Crow, You've got a little bit different story. And what I want to just want to just comparison with Connecticut. 158 people executed over 400 years in Connecticut compares during the five years of George Bush's administration as governor in Texas with 154 people killed. So the gallows were not omnipresent. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> briefly, 11 people are hanged in Connecticut as witches, mm -hmm. 17th century. Those gallows were built ad hoc and then they were destroyed because the gallows represented, for the Puritans at least at that time, a symbol of evil. And the witches had to be killed, according to uh, Ecclesiastics, according to the Bible. They were then buried in unmarked graves, the gallows taken down. So the gallows was a, something that was brought out, in a sense, to cleanse evil, to expurgate evil out of the community. And, and Jack Schuler, you know the, the gallows, one of the things that you point, the gallows and the notion of hanging, this, the, the iconography of hang, hanging is explicitly theological, is explicitly religious in certain ways, and and I think links back pretty directly to Judas. This is how Judas dies as opposed to how as how Jesus dies. Yeah, one of my theories in the book is that, you know, people always say that hanging was the most ignoble way to die in the Middle Ages, and I wanted to know why that was. And I started to notice um, references to Judas in um, descriptions of hangings, and I also started to notice... Um, you know, this idea that Judas's hanging death was ignoble versus Christ's crucifixion. And so if you look at uh, imagery and uh, throughout the Middle Ages, you'll see, you know, see Christ's noble death next to Judas's ignoble hanging death. And I think that that idea sort of um, infused um, how people understood hanging versus other kinds of execution, falling on a sword or later the guillotine, for example. Um, and, and, and so, and Larry Goodhart, just to sort of um, stay with that for idea for a second. So as you're suggesting, um, hanging uh, was the, the means of execution in Connecticut for, I guess, hundreds of years. Um, and, but it seemed n not inseparable from Connecticut's essentially theocratic nature, that somehow or other this was a theocracy's way of not just maintaining order, but really kind of demarcating those things which were wrong, truly, you mm -hmm. know, sort of theologically, religiously, morally wrong from things that were right. You want to elaborate on that? Yeah, that, that's, that, I think that's a, a fair generalization. Just um, taking a very narrow perspective of, of Connecticut and, and reflective of, of New England, mm -hmm. hanging from 1642 until 1936, uh, which is the last hanging in, in Connecticut, goes through certain stages. First, it's public. Mm -hmm. Executions are public. Men, women, and children, the whole community came out to see it until 1830 when it was privatized. And just briefly, 
the reason it was public, and it, you're right, it was more theological, it was to put the fear of God in people and the fear of hell. And there was a whole ritual of execution sermons, hopefully of recantations and instructions to the community at large that this is what would happen to you if you committed a capital crime. Then by 1830, in the aftermath of the revolution, the new republic, uh, this new order of the world, uh, all the hopefulness and utopianism of, of the revolution, it was seen as, as too brutal. It was seen as uh, callous. It was seen as uh, too insensitive. And so it, then it was to be only done within the jails. But uh, again, I'll try and cut this short, is uh, the jailers in the various towns were not adept at doing this. Mm -hmm. And also there's tremendous pressure to admit uh, actually dozens, in some cases hundreds of people in. And so finally by 1893, the state uh, located it in a special area in the Wethersfield State Prison. So it was out of sight and out of mind. And that's where it remained. But Jack, Jack Schuler, one of the things that you <clears throat> chronicle in your book is that it's certainly not the case nationally. And, and not only are, are hangings uh, done publicly as uh, partly, I think, a means of, of moral education and, and intimidation, mm -hmm. lynchings are done publicly and, and, sure. and attract great crowds. But, but before we get to that, though, I just want to see um, how far you're willing to extrapolate from Larry's point. I mean, when, when, we, when you write about lynchings uh, in this book and you, you talk about the fact that so often they are connected to the notion uh, that a black man, the accusation that a black man has raped a white woman, that, and that somehow or other there's this um, almost you know, primitive connection that if that happens, this thing which the white hierarchy is really you know, uh, identified as somehow or other symbolic of you know, a whole structure that they're trying to maintain and what could undermine it, uh, that, mm -hmm. that this is the answer. I mean, do you see a connection between Larry's Calvinists and, uh, and, and white, uh, the white power structure in the South using lynching uh, in a similar way? Uh, well, when I read the book, when I started working on the book, I knew that lynching was going to frame uh, the discussion because I began um, by looking at what happened in Gina, Louisiana in 2006, the two nooses hanging from the tree at, the, at Gina High School. And so I knew that, that lynching and that history was going to be a part of it. But what I really wanted to understand was this long history of hanging as a practice. And how do we get from, uh, you know, hangings in the Middle Ages to lynchings in uh, the 1930s United States, where people are doing similar things, they're acting in similar ways as they were in the Middle Ages in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. You know, they're... they're um, they're trying to. Uh, they're parading the victim around. They're sometimes torturing the victim before they execute the victim. Sometimes there's evidence that they ask them for their last words, right? Same sorts of things that they might have done in the Middle Ages, and then they're also getting relics, right? So they're, you know, they're taking um, pieces of the rope um, in the Middle Ages, maybe the gallows, um, the tree where the person was hanged, um, or body parts even. Um, so I don't think I don't think that we can understand. I mean, this is one of the things that I sort of get to in the book. I don't think we can understand lynching if we don't really look at this longer history because they are connected. Um, now, as to whether there is um, some sort of religious impulse in the people who are lynching, I, I I don't think you can say that about every single. I think every lynching there's a different reason, a different motive. Um, and I don't think, I mean, that was the thing that Ida B. Wells um, did so well in, in pointing out is that it wasn't, it wasn't black men rape, raping 
white women mm-hmm. that was causing all these lynchings. It was a whole host of things, you know, including economic pressures, um, including you know elites wanting a poor whites to do these sorts of things to maintain a sort of social order. Ultimately, it does do that. It creates this this um, social order. In the book, I talk about this sort of quiet, horrible discipline that it imposes on these communities. Yeah, I mean, I, I and I didn't <coughs> mean to suggest that there's anything innately uh, religious about sure. uh, about hangings, but just in the same sense that Kai Erickson and, and Wayward Puritans talks about the way that, that in fact societies use this kind of stuff, use this sort of definition uh, of uh, of evil and this very biblical looking punishment of evil uh, to in fact set up what they want their norms to be. Um, right. you, you sort of it seems like this runs through this a yeah. lot, and as you're suggesting, you know, even Absolutely. in the er- early 20th century when there are other ways to, in, to conduct uh, executions, hanging has, hangings used for a specific reason, right? It says something. Right. And, you know what, I, what I've always been curious about, and I, and it's hard to find uh, good evidence of this, but what, I think a way to answer this might be to think about what these relics mean to the people who are taking them. Mm-hmm. Um, do they, do they hold some sort of uh, spiritual or religious um, power um, in the same way that they might have done uh, in earlier days, um, and and I I don't really have a way of answering that except that I that I see it happening again and again in places um, as far apart as South Carolina and Indiana. Um, I, I'm wondering whether to take a break now, but let's just sort of stay with this for a second. So, um, Larry Goodhart, it seems mm-hmm. to me one of the other things that kind of emerges in your book and Jack's book too is that uh, hanging is also something that happens not exclusively but happens to the other, the capital O, other. And, and one story that you both know, one story that you both treat mm-hmm. of in your books is the story of Hannah uh, Okush. So, um, Larry, I'm going to let you uh, set up that story, and then we'll get uh, Jack's look at it as well. Well, this, this is a situation well-known in Connecticut, anyhow, of the uh, 12-year-old girl of um, mixed-race African-Indian uh, race who was hanged in New London in 1786, perhaps the youngest person judicially hanged in, in the United States. Um, it occurred at a time, I could, there's a long answer to this and there's a short answer to this. It occurred at a time uh, just after the revolution in which <clears throat> there was a great deal of social dislocation, tension, Tories versus uh, revolutionaries, uh, new style government, et cetera, et cetera. And she had killed a little white uh, white girl, there was a lot of tension in her background, um, and she was hanged. And it's very exceptional in Connecticut uh, that anybody that young was hanged. There was some 16-year-old boys, 18-year-old boys who were hanged. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll just conclude here, and if, if we want to pick this up later and Jack mm. wants to pick it up, we can. I think one important thing to come of this, it was so shocking even at that time that this occurred within a colony and state that prided itself on the rule of law, that after that, no female of any age has ever been hanged in Connecticut. And in the book, I look at several situations where women were involved in first-degree homicides and purposely the legal system, the court system, barred them from execution. Um, one of the things that you look at, uh, Jack, in your book, you know, over and over again, and you've already alluded to it, is that it's almost impossible to, you should pardon the expression, unthread a hanging from 
all of the circumstances that, that precede it, um, uh, economic circumstances, um, milita- military circumstances, you know, that everything that the society is at that moment leads up to the hanging. And that's certainly how you look at the hanging of Hannah or Kush, Hannah or Kush that this, this all was sort of ginned up by uh, the, the constant conflict between uh, English and, and Pequots, sometimes English enlisting uh, other Indians mm-hmm. to assist, uh, assist them on raids uh, uh, mm-hmm. against the Pequots. The H- Hannah Okush was sort of a product of all that before she ever became the, the, the subject of the case that, uh, that caused her to be, to be hanged. I'll, I'll kind of let you pick it up. Yeah, I mean, she was a, uh, you know, she she killed a, a six-year-old girl, um, and she was um, the product of a mother who was likely an alcoholic, um, a father who was absent. Um, she had basically, she was about to be handed over as an indentured servant, and she ended up with a, a woman who took care of her, and or sort of took care of her. It doesn't seem like she took care of her very well. Um, which is the thing that that actually at her in her execution sermon that uh, Henry Channing talks about, and I think that's especially important in this moment. Henry Channing um, is a, a young Yale tutor with a Unitarian background. Um, he's trying to uh, get a job with New London's First Congregational Church, and he chastises them, saying that they did not take care of this young woman. And I think it's an interesting moment too, 1786, when this new place is trying to figure out what it is. What kind of country are we going to be? What are we going to be um, when we move forward? And and Henry Channing is saying, listen, you have to take care of everyone in your community. A community is responsible for everyone who is in their midst, even someone like Hannah, even a racial, ethnic other. Um, We're going to grab, grab okay, did you, oh, you were finishing up a thought? I'm sorry. I'm good. Okay, you're good. I'm good. Um, Let me grab a quick break here. Uh, We'll come back. We're talking about hanging today. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, love, once again, happy. These are not really good words, but 860-275-7266. That's the number to call. 860-275-7266. If you have questions about hanging, I can almost guarantee you someone here will be able to answer them, but it will not be me. Bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves. Blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. We're back. We're back. We're talking about uh, the history of hanging, the history of the noose. Uh, with uh, Jack Schuler and Lawrence Goodhart. Uh, we're happy to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Um, Jack Schuler, back to you for a second. One of the things you do at the beginning of this book is to try to understand even the noose itself. You 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 visit with a, a knot. You, have, you are visited by a knot-tying expert. Uh, from the International Guild of Knot-Tiers. Right, and he's a, a fascinating uh, character, a colorful character in your book. Um, but there, there's, there's a goal. I mean, here you are essentially writing a history of this and, and investigating the historical record. And, uh, but somehow or other, you want to know this something fundamental about this. You want to be able to maybe even to tie the knot yourself, although you're not a good knot tire. Um, what, why is it? What was, what was the importance of that to you? Well, I, I wanted to, um, well, I first wanted to know, was it a hard knot to tie? Um, could someone learn how to do it? And I learned um, from the guy that I worked with, a guy named Glenn Dickey, 
um, and from YouTube that, yes, I can learn how to do this. Um, it's not an easy knot. It's not a knot that you would tie very quickly, um, which helped me understand uh, what I was looking at when I looked at lynching photos especially. One of the things that Glenn introduced to me was the idea that there's a, there's a whole field called forensic knot science, people who study knots that are used in crimes, and they learn from those knots, you know, who tied the knots, were they in a hurry? Um, what what hand do they use, right? Mm. And we were able to look at a number of lynching photographs, and he was able to tell me not only um, the handedness of the person who tied the knot, but the kind of rope that was used, where that rope might have been used, um, you know, in the late 19th or early 20th century, the kind of knot they tied, and was it connected to some particular career, for example? Um, there's this myth that uh, well, there, there's a lot of myths about who actually lynched, um, and a lot of people believe that the Klan was lynching people in the South, and that's not true. It was the good folks of communities all over the South, throughout the United States, who were lynching people, and it was people from all walks of life, many different classes. So uh, Glenn was able to show me that. That that was one of the main reasons why I um, fell in with the knot-tying crowd, um, because I thought that there's something that perhaps we can learn from looking at these images that we haven't figured out already. Um, and I also I want to, as a writer, I want to go through the motions myself. I want to put myself in the place uh, in, of the person tying the knot to try to understand what it is they're thinking. In the same way that when I do research, I always go to the places that I write about because I want to, I want to feel the place because I, I, I think history um, is located in the places. It's all around us, and it's not there at the same time. Um, so I go to the places that I write about, and I talk to the people who live there, um, who are connected to these stories in some way. So, and and those two, you know, with the knot and with the history itself, I like to feel as close to it as I can. You know, one of the things that I thought about as we got ready for the show too was this notion. I was trying to think on my own anyway about what what hanging is, and and that you know in some ways it, it differs from other means uh, in a lot of ways in a lot of ways that you cover it differs from other ways of executing people i mean it really is different in a lot of ways from a firing squad or a beheading we're starting to see uh beheadings uh touch our lives uh, again uh mm-hmm. lots of these other ways and and one of them is that it kind of it, in a strange way it kind of um distances the agent of it a little bit. I mean, you're either part of a firing squad or you're not. You're either swinging a sword at somebody's head uh, to behead them or you're not. Uh, you're either uh, operating an electric, electric chair or, or a lethal injection system or you're not. But in hanging, gravity kind of does the job, right? You set up this whole set of events. Uh, you put this body in motion. And then kind of, you know, if everything goes well, which it so less frequently does than I think we've been led to believe, Gravity kind of does the last little bit for you. I, I don't know. I don't know whether you find that psychologically significant or not. I always think that there's there's a lot of agency involved in in a hanging. I think you know if someone kicks out the chair, someone pushes, tells the ox to move. Mm-hmm. Someone, um, uh, for example, in Mankato, Minnesota, on the day after Christmas in 1862, someone took an axe cut a rope, and that rope um, caused the deaths of 38 Dakota warriors at the same time. Um, but I think, I, I see what you're saying, and I think that, you know, there's this conversation right now about the, the sort of dispersal responsibility with lethal injection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone makes the drugs, someone makes the, the needles, someone puts it into the, you know, the IV in the arm, and someone pushes, you know, the drugs in or whatever. Um, but uh, with hanging, um, 
you do have similar kinds of patterns. You people who construct the gallows, people who tie the knots, um, people who cause these things to happen. But ultimately, you are there. You're hanging uh, between heaven and earth, right? Mm-hmm. Always, forever in that place, um, which um, maybe is a bit different than uh, a firing squad. It's not as clean. Um, it's definitely uglier. Um, you know, uh, in the in the Middle Ages, there people didn't wear hoods mostly, so you would see the face, you would see the face facial gestures. Um, you know, the bowels would evacuate, evacu- you know, and and so um, it's uglier. It's much uglier um, than than most forms, I think. Um, let's stay with that ugliness for a second, Larry Goodhart. I mean, I think it's sort of another thing that uh, people picture when they think of hanging. They 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 think of it anyway as sort of something that happens outdoors. You know, it's it's from a tree or it's from a wooden gallows. It's from a rope. You know, and uh, it all seems, uh, in, at least in that way. I mean, it's it's a very ugly thing. But people sometimes in their minds make it less ugly. Uh, and one of the things that you called my attention to is the fact that uh, that Connecticut stayed with hanging long enough so that it began to have kind of an industrial uh, look to it. You actually have shared with me this uh, artist's rendering of the uh, um, uh, the hanging uh, by Connecticut of Gerald Chapman. Uh, Chapman, tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Right, right. Well, there, there's, a, there's a history to this, too, as, as, as uh, you were indicating the conversation. There's definitely display quality mm. to the hanging, especially in New England, because it was meant as a, a moral act by the state, by the colony, to imbue correct behavior in the uh, in the citizenry. However, however, again, after the Republic um, in, in Connecticut and in much of the at least northeastern United States, public executions were banned. However, it, there was great difficulty of the local sheriffs to have sequestered, that is, hidden hangings in the jails. Partly what um, Jack was saying, difficulty in getting the knots tied properly, difficulty in building the gallows ad hoc, difficulty in the drop, whether it would break the neck, suffocate, et cetera, whether the body would hit the ground. Um, There were some technological difficulties, not to mention the moral aspects of this. And so what you're alluding to in this uh, photograph uh, from governor's records and um, artist renderings uh, in the 1920s in the state archives here in Connecticut it became industrial in 1894. And just a brief story, by the time the hangings were sequestered in the state prison in 1893, there were still difficulties with the drop and making it, quote, unquote, efficient in an industrial age. And one Italian immigrant who was uh, convicted broke down in the uh, hanging. He became uh, emotionally distraught. He had to be physically restrained. He had to be held as he was hanged. And so this put the burden on the warden of the uh, prison, who was now the legal, responsi- legal person legally responsible as the executioner, to develop a new system. And they developed, it's a little hard to describe the... Um, it almost looks like a toilet. Uh, it almost looks like the inside of a toilet. I mean, there's this plunger. There's this plunger. There's a yeah. counterweight that drops through a floor. And instead of the hanged person... Dropping, they're they're lifted, right? Yes, and this was seen as much more efficient. And again, I think it's the industrial age, it's the gilded age, it's the mass production age. And right, the person, as one reporter said, was 
shot like a rocket to the ceiling. They would go six mm-hmm. feet up, and then they would drop down two feet, and it was very efficient. And I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll close there with, by the 1890s, the state of Connecticut was able to kill a person, to hang a person, from the moment of entry to putting the noose on, tying them up, putting the hood on within 25 seconds. 25 seconds, they got the noose on, and they got the person jerked up and down. Let me just stay with you for a second, Larry. Um, how much longer than that did Connecticut continue to hang people? To 1936. Yeah. And so, and that was after kind of comparable northeastern states had, had shifted? Yes. New York took the lead 1891 with the electric chair, but st- land of steady habits stayed till 1936 with hanging. And Jack Schuler, as you looked at this sort of nationwide, I mean, what's the trajectory of judicial as opposed to extrajudicial, extrajudicial hanging? I mean, I, I don't know. Does it, uh, first of all, I'm assuming nobody does it anymore in the U.S. Am I wrong about that? Uh, judicial? Yeah. No. Uh, no. Um, well, Washington, if lethal injection, if you don't want lethal injection, um, but they have a, a essentially a moratorium right now in New Hampshire, um, but you know, I don't think there's going to be a hanging in New Hampshire anytime soon. I think New Hampshire might be one of the states that ends up getting rid of the death penalty in the next five years or so. But I, can I um, go back to this discussion of technology? I think yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. really interesting one. Um, you know, we start to see uh, in, with the Enlightenment this this push to make executions more humane. Um, and, and there's a, you know, sort of a uh, connection to moving, hanging indoors and, and that sort of thing. In the late, uh, sort of mid to late 19th century, you start to see people devising these tables, right, with the height and the weight of the prisoner. There was an Irish doctor named Samuel Halton who um, invented, created one of the first ones. Um, And, you know, there's this emphasis on if we can just get it right, if we can just get the, 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 the measurements right, the rope right, the knot right, the drop right, then the person will die uh, quickly and efficiently. Um, and then you get an incident like the 38 Dakota Warriors who were executed at exactly the same time in, in 1862, and you, and you read reports on that execution, and you see that you know, the, human being, the human body responds to hanging in many different ways, right? I mean, some people died quickly. Some people, um, you know, didn't, it took them 20 to 25 minutes before they died. Um, in some cases, the rope broke. Um, and so the human body responds in, in many different ways, and we're seeing that today, too, with lethal injection. There's, this, there's always this, this effort and this push to make execution more humane, and we keep, we keep doing that today uh, still. But we go back to the, the thing that you know, maybe what we're doing isn't humane. Maybe the whole process isn't humane. Um, maybe there's no way to do it. Yeah, go ahead, Larry. If I could just add on that, I, I think that's, that's a central, the central contradiction, and I, I write about the paradox of it. And um, the state is killing somebody, and it, it's not pretty. And it doesn't matter what technology you're using or how efficient it is. It ultimately, in our own modern times in the United States, it's increasingly hidden. It's just plain ugly, no matter whether it's drugs, a rope, or electricity. Well, Jack Schuler, with that in mind, I, I thought one of the really interesting things in this book, one of the um, interesting ways that you kind of um, uh, um, uh, are exhibited yourself in this book, you exhibit yourself in this way, is, you know, uh, this is something, I mean, the argument you're making from the very beginning of this book is this is something that really has to be looked at uh, viscerally and emotionally and, 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 and you know, you, c- you can't 
ab- make it abstract and you can't uh, distance yourself from it. And yet, on the other hand, there's this kind. There's this. Uh, the book is bracketed by these kind of moments. This particular moment, I think, and I think you're in North Dakota or someplace where where this guy is kind of goading you. This guy <laughs> who's who's uh, you know intrigued by your investigation into that mass ha- uh, hanging, Native American hanging mm-hmm. that you just talked about. But he's he's convinced somehow that you've got some distance from it, that you're not sufficiently and viscerally engaged with this, with it, and therefore you've got no right um, Right. looking into that. Can you say some more about that? So um, I went out to Minnesota because I wanted to see one of the nooses that was used in that mass execution is in the the archives at the Minnesota Historical Society. And I, I emailed them and I requested permission to see it. And I got a flurry of emails and responses and eventually a phone call and someone saying, I'm sorry, you can't see it. It's culturally sensitive. And so then, of course, I really wanted to see it, got on a plane, went out there. Um, and was told the same thing. And I, I was kind of sent on a, a bit of a journey from one person to the next. And I ended up talking to a number of Dakota folks about um, about why this uh, noose that's in the archives that's connected to a man named Chaskay um, is sensitive and how the Dakota people would like to take it back and potentially destroy it. Um, and I ended up in South Dakota talking to a guy named J.B. Weston at the Flandreau Sioux um, Reservation. And Mr. Weston um, basically put me in my place. I mean, I, I really didn't know the story as well as I should have. I didn't know the history as well as I should have. And I wasn't as connected to that community, and I didn't quite understand it in the way that he did. And he said to me, um, so why don't you put the noose around your neck? And then he kept talking, and he would tell me some more about um, you know, the history of the Dakota people and why the, the noose matters. And he pointed to some people sitting in the corner and he said, you know, those teenagers there, you know, um, they have drug problems. You know, that's the, the noose. We need to get rid of the noose because the spirit of Chaske isn't at rest. And, and we are still having these struggles. And he looks at me again and he says, then you need to put that noose around your neck. And then he keeps talking and he tells me some more and he points to a man who's walking across the, the casino floor and he says, that man is the great-great-grandson of Chaske and you, Jack, need to put the noose around your neck. And I kind of lost it. And I was like, what do you ta- why do you keep saying this to me? He's like, I know, what, I know what you're talking about. I know what the noose means. I know what it does. And at that moment, it dawned on me. I remembered something from my, from my teenage years that I hadn't even thought about until that moment. Um, that I had lost a, a friend of mine in high school. He committed suicide, and he hanged himself. And, it, and I hadn't been thinking about that. I, I initially said, I'm not writing a book about suicide. I'm writing a book about the legal and extra-legal use of the noose. Um, but, but then I saw you know, that there was this person in my own life who had experienced you know, this. And uh, it, it kind of blew me away because I think what he was trying to get me to understand was that Chaskay was a man mm. who had connections to this community, who has, you know, descendants. Um, and those are people. Those are real people that I'm writing about. Right. I mean, and he essentially says to you, after you flip out on him, he essentially says to you, okay, now right from that place, yeah. um, uh, you know, right from that place where, where it's that real to you. Uh, all right, yeah. we have to take a quick break. This hour is flying by. Um, uh, we have some calls. I'd like to get to those. So if you're uh, on hold right now from Bridgehampton or Weathersfield or Torrington, please do stay on hold. We'll come right back to you after this. So still around the mess, a 10 million ghosts. 
kind of, don't you know? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Jackie Filson. Katie Talarski is our executive producer, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For show pages, articles, audio, and links, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to Hamlet. Now, back to Colin. Yes, and uh, you know, so things do kind of tie together. I was at uh, the Darko Tresnik version of Hamlet last night, and of course the two gravediggers, who are essentially clowns, do have a conversation about uh, what is he that builds stronger than either the mason, the shipwright, or the carpenter. One of them says the gallows maker, for that frame outlives a thousand tenants. Uh, and then they go on to discuss that, whether that's true or not. So joining me in studio is Professor Lawrence Goodhart, professor of history at University of Connecticut. His book, both of these books are like really, really worth you, the listener, spending some time with. Uh, his book, uh, The Solemn Sentence of Death, Capital Punishment in Connecticut, is one I've had since it came out. And we're in the middle of um, just uh, demolishing our offices right now. And um, it was one of the books that I made sure didn't get lost. Uh, it, I, because this stuff comes up enough, it's just kind of uh, an essential thing for me to have. And then this new book, uh, Jack Schuler is the author of the Thirteenth Turn. Thirteenth Turn, by the way, is a by the way is a reference to the knot that is tied in the noose. And the, there are a couple of different theories about how to tie it, but one of them is there need to be thirteen turns of the rope or around the uh, other part of the rope uh, to create the noose knot. Anyway, the Thirteenth Turn: uh, History of the Noose. Um, I'm gonna whoops, I'm gonna go grab a couple of uh, phone calls here. Let's start with uh, Sharon from Torrington. Hi, Sharon, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, you know, I find it interesting because. Um, from what I understood, back in the 1700s, uh, the guillotine was considered a more humane way, especially in Europe, of executing people. So I'm wondering why um, people in America at that time did not choose to go that way versus hanging. And my question is, I grew up in the northwest part of Connecticut. There is a road in, in Litchfield by the name of Gallows Road, mm -hmm. and I was always told by my grandparents and other family members that's where they had done a lot of hanging in this area, and I was just wondering if your guests could comment on that. And I'll take my answer. Sure. Um, okay? Absolutely. Um, Larry Goodhart, I, I think that second thing uh, you can certainly speak to. Yeah. And uh, even even the first, I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, on, the, on the first part, in in New England, including, including Connecticut, when the Puritans came here, they were persecuted in England. England into the 19th century had, in much of Europe, had extraordinary punishments. Torture, uh, drawing and quartering, um, horrible stuff. Part of the New England law codes banned torture, something that uh, the United States government in the 20th uh, century, uh, 21st century, uh, ought to learn about. Um, so hanging was seen, I think, as as uh, a better way than quartering a person, and yet to get the moral lesson out from their uh, theological point of view. And the, the other point about the gallows, I can't answer specifically, but there were not that many hangings per se in any one area in the state. We have 158 people who were judicially killed in Connecticut, and that's over 400 years. And 60 of those occurred after 1880. The largest group of people to be hanged in Connecticut were the immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, and by ethnicity, they were Italian immigrants. Mm. 
So th- those names do linger, mm-hmm. and there were undoubtedly hangings there, but maybe one, two, three, not dozens, not dozens. You know, um, uh, uh, Jim uh, from Weatherfield and Grover from Bridgehampton, I swear I will get to you, but just sort of while we're on that, um, uh, and this is sort of a, an interesting uh, place to go, I think, is while that was going on, while that group of people were subject to being hanging, being hung, hanged, um, Jack Schuler, uh, one of the things that I discovered um, about Connecticut was that uh, although we didn't have post-Civil War lynchings, we had all these near lynchings. They're constantly, uh, w- it was <laughs> constantly happening, and, and they're just, uh, you know, pretty, some pretty vivid accounts of them. Uh, uh, 1870s, 1880s, well into the early part of the 20th century, um, ine- inevitably this would involve the accusation usually of a sexual assault or a murder against an African-American mm-hmm. man, and in fact, crowds would break into the jail and, and get a noose or have a noose and, and, and drag the guy through the streets, and, and somehow or other, in each occasion, law enforcement intervened often at the last minute and stopped it from happening. And then meanwhile, also this other thing was happening, which I wasn't really quite aware of uh, until encountering your book and all this material, which is that, you know, that Booker T. Washington and James Weldon Johnson and all, all these people were really there was an incredible crusade in America to get lynching to be taken seriously uh, post Civil War. Right. There was this like I mean, you wouldn't think this conversation would have needed to be had. But there was and, and, and these people visited Connecticut in order to rally support for the idea that people who were involved in lynchings or who countenanced them were actually guilty of a crime. I'll, I'll kind of let you respond to that. Yeah, I mean, Ida B. Wells obviously is the is the name that that most people know about there, and there are many others. Um, and I think this is a book that I'd like to write one day. Um, uh, the NAACP in the twenties um, and thirties hired uh, investigators to go into communities to investigate lynchings, um, and they would use the information that they got from these investigations to you know to tell their congressmen you know pass some legislation around this, uh, which they never did. Um, and one of the guys uh, that I've, I've always been fascinated with, a guy named Howard Kester, who was a union organizer and, and Methodist, um, well, at one time was a Methodist minister and be- until he became too radical. But Walter White sent Howard Kester into uh, a number of really dangerous situations, and Kester would pretend to be a Bible salesman, and he would talk to the people who had actually you know, uh, lynched um, other people, and he would write these reports. And... Reading uh, his report of a lynching in Duck Hill, Mississippi, was one of the first times that I think when I wrote this book that I actually broke down and cried, mm. uh, just reading those descriptions. And even those descriptions did not, didn't move Congress. Yeah. That always surprises me. And I should say, I keep saying sexual accusations, accusations of sexual assault or murder. Sometimes it was like just a labor dispute. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't always anything that we would stealing recognize. horses. Yeah. Um, you know, um, arson, accused arson. Um, one of the first lynchings that I knew anything about um, happened in my hometown of Orangeburg, South Carolina, and it was a guy who was accused of arson and his friends. Um, who didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, we're going to run out of time no matter what I do, but let's grab a call here from Jim in Weatherfield because I promised. Uh, I think this is probably going to go to Lawrence Goodhart. Let's see. Uh, Jim, yeah, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Colin. Thanks. Uh, I'm on the governing board of Weatherfield Historical Society. I just had a quick comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to mention that uh, I think about one-third of the uh, hangings uh, in Weatherfield took place using the automatic gallows at the, at the Weatherfield prison that you folks spoke about mm-hmm. earlier. And I also want to do a quick endorsement, mentioning the Weathersfield Historical Society uh, just opened an exhibition on the history of the state prison. 
which includes the plans for the automatic gallows as well as the actual electric chair uh, that replaced it. And that's going to be running for the next three years at the Keeney Memorial Cultural Center. So not, not to mention a, um, a sensitive point, Jim, but did this all happen kind of right where the Department of Motor Vehicles is now? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly where the, uh, the state yeah. prison is and a little overflow into what we now call Cove Park, but right. basically. In fact, they built, they actually built the Motor Vehicles Department within the outer surface of the uh, of the prison when they started to build it. Well, I mean, I guess they could say you could be having a much worse day uh, <laughs> at this place than you are having anyway. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Larry? Or sure, yeah. I, I uh, participated a little bit, and I, I just endorse what the gentleman says. It's a, ter- it's a, ter- a terrific uh, exhibit there, and I urge people to, to see it. It's well done, very well done. Uh, let me grab one last call before we uh, sum up here. Here's uh, Grover in Bridgehampton, New York. Hi, Grover. Hi, odd but fascinating topic. I just wanted to mention that a hanging was the reason for one of the most famous newspaper headlines of all time, and that was in Chicago in the 1880s, and it involved a story about four murderers who found God shortly before they were to be hung. And the Times, after they were hung, ran the story with the headline, Jerked to Jesus. Uh, How's that for alliteration? Yeah, charming. Charming. Uh, well, you know, I mean, maybe this is, an, this is an imperfect segue, but it, it, it sort of leads us to we've only got about three minutes left. And there's one thing, one place I want to end uh, with Jack Schuler, and It's where we began, really. So that, you know, now the noose is pretty commonly used as a way as a threat, as an intimidation. It, you know, in, in the ways that we were talking about at the beginning of this thing, you know, it could show up on somebody's door. You get a picture of one in the mail, that kind of thing. Um, and and. One senses that somehow or other there's been a sanitization, that maybe even the people who are using this don't entirely connect, certainly not in a way that would satisfy the guy in South Dakota, but not even satisfy anybody, really, do not really connect what they're doing to what we spent the last 45 minutes talking about. Sure. Um, the, the incident in Gina, Louisiana, where the two nooses were hanging on the, the white tree mm-hmm. at the high school, um, that sort of launched that whole um, debacle. Um, the, the the kids who who put the nooses there claimed that they didn't know the history, you know, or why. And and that's actually a common response that I've seen, especially in high school noose incidents, um, which there are a number. Um, you know, Gina wasn't the first and hasn't been the last. I've been tracking this for the past three years. Um, and I, I think that I think that they don't know it because they're not being taught this history. I think it's a central narrative in American history, but it's not one that we that we want to talk about because it's so ugly, um, and because it's so imperfect, and because it takes us to places that I don't think that we often want to go. And I certainly didn't want to go, but I was compelled to write this. So, but um, yeah, I, I I think I think that for the most part we don't we don't understand this history we don't want to know this history, and uh, and we we look at it through um, through our hands and I and I think that what's also interesting is that those kids at um, at the high school in, in Gina one of the things that they said was that they were they were doing what they had learned from watching Lonesome Dove, so the idea that you know uh, that this is something fictional this is something from a western but actually real people were hanged right not fictional characters 
Um, I, I don't think I have time to kind of open uh, another can of worms here. So instead, uh, first of all, I, I do want to maybe even more than usual recommend both of these books uh, by Lawrence Goodhart, uh, The Solemn Sentence of Death, Capital Punishment in Connecticut, and Jack Schuler's book, uh, The 13th Turn, A History uh, of the Noose. I mean, it really does take you, we didn't have time to talk about Tolland Man from Denmark in 350 B.C., uh, all the way through the history of this in in. Uh, in the U.S. And, and other countries as well, but it's about as comprehensive uh, and, and kind of multidisciplinary uh, an approach to, um, to this topic as we, we possibly could imagine. So uh, both of the books uh, I highly recommend. Uh, tomorrow we will be talking about Hamlet. Uh, meanwhile, we wanted to end with this song uh, by uh, Grant Peoples and Eliza Gillickson. It's a, it's a fairly new recording uh, called The Hanging. Down over his head and his face was covered with a shroud and then that woman held her little bird to her breast as the order rang loud and clear and i heard a crack as they snapped his neck and the crowd it let out a cheer and she said i'm not crying for him